The Guardian. This Guardian podcast is sponsored by Husqvarna, leaders in lawn and garden equipment. Husqvarna, ready when you are. I have pretty much compost every pair of pants I've ever owned. I had these like <laughs> lacy ones, which took about, it was really interesting, these kind of silk lacy pants, and they took about four years to break down. Every year they'd come out and I'd photograph them, they were a bit more kind of, <laughs> until it's just, it's just the elastic around the waist. Alice fans, you've got a yeah. treat today. <laughs> I'm not showing any of those pictures. ask Alice or me where's the heart of our gardens, the likelihood is we won't say the shed or the pond. No, it's without doubt the compost heap. In goes green waste, old bank statement, coffee grounds and bits of old woolen jumpers and out comes the very best of all soil improvers, homemade compost. So in this episode of So Grow Repeat, we're digging deep in the compost heap. We'll be speaking to America's longest-running garden columnist, Jeff Lowenfels, author of Teeming with Microbes and master composter, Emma Cooper. But first, let's have a rummage in my compost bin. What's in here? Well, the top layer looks pretty unpromising. It's a big pile of sorrel leaves that I have bolted and are much over the hill. Below that, there's some cardboard. And then there's a big mass of what I can only describe as... Hmm, how would I describe it? I think it's feathers, actually. I had a feather pillow and I decided that I wasn't going to waste the feathers. It's a bad idea to put feathers into a composting dry because what happens is then they make a lovely nice nest for a rodent. So I soaked these in water for a good few weeks and then I put them into the heat. They've gone red for some strange reason but they're breaking down beautifully and there's lots of wood lice and slugs at work as well. I just turned this heat recently and remade it with uh, my friend Sharon's guinea pig bedding and lots of kitchen waste and some garden waste and of course the feathers so it's going down pretty quickly at the minute and within probably a couple of months I'll come back and give it another shimmy round and turn it again. So how many compost bins do you own Jane? Well I've got two. It's not a, That's not that many I thought you were going to say. It's not that many I need more. How many I, have you been more? through? Well, I know I've had to, I've had these same two. They're wooden beehive style ones. They're not big enough by far. And I did have two wormeries. I've only got one wormery now, but I um, have more trays in it. So it's a skyscraper of a wormery. I would like more compost bins. I need to expand my composting empire further. Do you do bakashi? I haven't. That's oh, okay. one thing. I haven't tried bakashi. And I every year I think, oh, bakashi, give it a try. And I haven't done so, but I've heard sort of good and bad stories about it. Yeah, I think it's like anything. If you abuse the system, you end up with the most revolting thing in the world. I remember yeah. once opening the Bukashi bin and it was, I mean, if I'd taken like the contents of my stomach and guts together and mixed them, oh my God. Only been as close and to just let's just explain getting. for anyone who hasn't heard so of Bakashi. Bakashi is this extraordinary Japanese system of composting on a really small scale. So you get these two plastic bins and you do need two. I don't think you can get away with having one. And they are kind of compost caddies. They're slightly bigger than the ones that you might find to put your kitchen scraps in. And you put everything into a Bakashi bin as long as it's not got any carbon so no paper no no cardboard but all your food waste goes in and then every kind of five well every time you put food waste in you put this 
bran which has been inoculated with special bacteria and essentially what the Bokashi system does is it introduces loads of this good bacteria into the system so that the compost starts to break down really really quickly and it's very odd because how the bacteria works is it impregnates whatever you've put in and works inside out so when you look every time you open it up it looks like your food looks exactly as you've left it so if you put an orange in there it's a whole orange but you go and press it and the whole thing just goes and like explodes into kind of instant sort of mush um first thought my children are gonna love this yeah well it can be and then and then you have a tap and you drain off this special kind of they call it ect- ectomicrobial juice. Is so that yeah, basically, we just basically it's, call it juice. It's this, <laughs> it's this weird-looking tea-like okay. liquid, which can smell quite extraordinary. And then this liquid, when you make it perfectly, you can actually drink, and it's incredibly good for your guts. Believe it or not, oh, I don't I'm, really suggest I'm anybody scared. doing it because you've got to make it very, very, very well. But even when you make it badly, it's disclaimer: in- if you drink, yes, don't, don't drink, drink it gra- <laughs> unless I've come and told you that you can drink it. So when you make this liquid, you then use it to clean your drains. Oh, now that. That's, that's an angle that I'm liking. Yeah, really good for outside drains, which are smelly. Really good oh, for bath drains, sold, which are smelly. Sold. I'm sold on Bokashi. So, and the Bokashi is a really lovely system because if you've just got a balcony or something like that, you really can compost on a small scale because all you're doing is putting your food waste into it. So, And that's mm. like the kids' cereal, which they haven't finished, pasta, meat, dairy, eggs, you name it. You can put any kind of food into it. So there's, it doesn't then, even have to be cooked food. And then once it's processed Processed. then it can go on the compost heap so what happens is it's you fill it up as much as you can and then you leave it for about two weeks until you often you see this extraordinary white mold when you open it up and that Mm. generally means it's finished and then either you can put it straight into the worm bin and as it's already kind of now really like baby food it's like mush the worms Mm. just eat it really quickly so it's one way to put things into the worm bin that if you felt your worms wouldn't get through it quick enough i see you can kind of speed it up like that or you can put it onto the compost i feel like it's slightly i mean it, it literally is like baby mush so i think onto the compost is quite complicated what most people do and what i do is dig it into the ground so you literally dig a hole empty the bucket hmm. put the soil back on and it disappears in seconds into the soil i shall begin my bakashi adventure shortly <laughs> <laughs> the thing i would say about bakashi is expensive because you have to mm. buy in the brand right so it's not and um and i have looked online and there are youtube videos about how you make the brand yourself but i mean mm. you know life is, life of, is short bit of a faff. yeah <laughs> let's talk about other sources for your compost heap where are you getting your your main supply for compost heap what's going into your heap so all my food waste I literally put everything, the like scum from the end of the washing up bowl, anything that has gone off in the fridge, as long as it's not dairy or meat, you know, sort of jam. Failed chutneys. Failed chutneys, exactly. <laughs> failed chutneys. Are, and jam is an amazing because it's it, because it's a source of sugar. The bacteria goes bonkers off it. So it's actually a really good way to kickstart your Oh, I'm your glad that you say that. And, uh, you know, toilet roll holders, stuff from the hairbrush, paper flower bags. Really good source of carbon, right? Isabel's uh, hair. Isabel's hair. I mean, mostly that's all over the house. You know, when <laughs> that's I'm his, doing that's Alice's dog. I should just say, in case you're wondering, she's talking uh, about wool socks. I have 
pretty much compost every pair of pants I've ever owned. The end of the cycle is into my into my compost bin. Can that please be our catch line on this podcast today? <laughs> I had these like lacy ones, which took about. It was really interesting. These kind of silk lacy pants, and they they took about four years to break down. Every year they come out, and I'd photograph them. They were a bit more kind of until it's just it's just the elastic around the like you know around the waist. Alice fans, you've got a yeah. treat today. <laughs> I'm not showing anybody those pictures. So all of that goes in. My neighbours, I don't have a lawn, but my neighbours have a lawn. So he gives me my grass, his grass, anything from the garden. So weeds, anything that you pruned. And tell me about your new source of animal manure. I have been looking for this for such a long time. And recently I found a pigeon fancier. And now I have all, because he has huge kind of network of sheds in his back garden where he raises all these I think they are homing pigeons. I think they're racing pigeons or something like that. But anyhow, I now get all the pigeon poo. Nice. And I once read this like 1940s book that said, you know, like it had this kind of hierarchy of animal poo and it put pigeon poo at the very top. Ah. So Better I, um, than chicken poo. Yeah, because it's so concentrated in nitrogen. He sends it to me in the old feed bags and they get fed on really extraordinary stuff. I suppose to give them energy to fly that far. Oh, I see. So they get loads of peas and high protein food. So I think that that means that it comes out through the system. Anyhow, it smells absolutely revolting. And the odd thing about it is it doesn't really break down. I mean, it clearly is going to break down. But um, initially, it's just this kind of almost concrete layer. But wow. he showed me what happens after five years and I've never seen such good soil. So... So I suppose that the thing with any of those animal manures that you might be using, whether it be pigeon poo or pony poo, is, is just that thing of we occasionally get emails from people saying, oh, my, I got an email recently saying my husband's just put a load of um, fresh manure onto my vegetable beds. Please, can you explain why why he's wrong to do this? You know, they've got to go through the compost heap system before you can use them in the garden, really. Do you just put add them all to the top or what, what do you I do? I put them in layers. I mean, I feel like composting is really simple. You just make layers of everything and, and nature gets on with the rest of it. So make too thick a layer of something and it will probably slow the heap down because whether it's bacteria or fungi that's deciding to get through that layer, if there's a really thick thing, then it's going to take them a bit longer. The wonderful thing about the compost heap is it's a very sort of egalitarian process, isn't it? Like whatever goes in it gets broken down. Also, I think the compost heap is a really is understand soil better than you do. So I think you can go and put sort of animal manures on your soil and maybe it's too intense for the mm. the flora and bacteria and all within the soil, or maybe it's, you know, just a bit too much. Whereas compost turns it into this kind of very even product, doesn't it? I mean it's quite hard mm. to come out with bad compost. Yeah, I think that's the thing that you kind of take comfort from at the end of the day, that however bad you are at composting, eventually yeah. you will get compost out the other end. It may take a shorter time or a longer time, depending on how you do it. But at the end of the day, you will end up with compost. Alice, do you use any aerators or do you just layer very carefully? Well, at the moment, I'm at home, I'm only using the hot bin and a worm bin. And then on yeah. the allotment, I have three pallet bins you know tell me about your hot bin and what it is and how it works so i love the hot bin because i love that you get to measure the temperature it makes me so happy <laughs> but also it's very neat and and contained and and because it's made out of this kind of black polystyrene it sort of sinks into the garden and you don't notice it and you're supposed to put in dried mulch 
as a kind of aeration layer. So every sort of 25 centimetres, you put this kind of bark mulch in, which then stops it from compacting down. Because the point about a hot bin is it's cooking the compost between 60 and 80 degrees. And therefore, everything is dropping very, very quickly. So you, And if you don't have enough air in it, the bacteria doesn't get going and then it stops being hot. And therefore, if you are putting things like food in, the bacteria is not in, getting cooked off. So then it's not as effective. However, I, you know, I'm the first person to like play around with the rules. So I ran out of the bag of bark mulch that they give you. And now I just use cardboard and it seems to be working just as well. So I think the whole thing about it, though, is that, is that thing of getting your carbon to nitrogen ratio right. And once you understand that basic principle. Yeah. So this is your greens versus your browns. Yeah. And, and this is, as, as Alice said, this is one of the key things that you have to get right. It can feel a bit daunting, perhaps, when you first start You're thinking, oh, my gosh. But as we've already said, your compost heap will compensate for a lot of your inexperience and get on with it and you'll still get compost. But let's just have a quick rundown of what the greens and the browns are, Alice. What, what kind of things are in each group? So the greens rec- represent nitrogen and the browns represent carbon. And you need one part nitrogen to five parts carbon four parts carbon anyhow the the point about it is you don't really have to worry about that because it's actually physically the nitrogen and the carbon can be in roughly the same amount so as long as you put equal amounts of green to equal amounts of brown it will break down and then the chemistry can be left to someone else but um nitrogen essentially is is anything that's wet anything that's still green grass leaves weeds anything like kitchen peelings will be high in nitrogen you know flowers that you're throwing out, orange squash that's gone gone fizzy, anything that's kind of fresh is one way of thinking about it. And the browns, which is the carbon, is going to be stuff like dried leaves, chopped up small brown stems, cardboard, the guardian, the manuscript. <laughs> Once you've read it, of course, <laughs> from the, cover to cover. Yeah. <laughs> Once you've digested. Um, uh, the manuscript that you should never have handed in. Bills. Nobody's going to yeah. go through your compost to find your bills. The contents of your vacuuming bag. See, that? See, I'm, that's an interesting one because I don't do the old vacuum bag thing because I'm thinking the state of my floors and what goes into that vacuum bag. There's some stuff in there, some like small bits of lego <laughs> okay but i do think they'll come out the other end yeah i guess not i'm down. always a bit worried about putting the vacuum, vacuum i put stuff all my in. i have brown paper bags and it has a little ring of plastic and i just pull that Take off that. and i oh, put the whole thing okay. in and it seems to work really well yeah. so in it goes i mean like i there's nothing i won't try and compost i mean it's lego as, as you say it's going to come out the other end and, and you're going to be able to just basically wash it off and put it back in the lego bucket yeah. but generally i think the worst thing to find in a compost heap alice a finger <laughs> teeth <laughs> no i was going to say a rat oh yeah okay <laughs> um the other day i opened the heap and i screamed so loudly Aww. because there's a little mouse in there and i don't actually i'm not scared of mice but it is a shock when you take the lid off and something literally launches yes. itself out that's the big problem about the compost bin is that when you open it up because they've been in the dark and you've opened up the light they're just going to mm. you know they're not going to try and bury themselves into the wet heavy compost below Mm. they are coming up at you and that's pretty (laughs) terrifying and i think the thing is if you feel like there's any chance that there's a rat in there what you do is gingerly open the lid and bang yeah with a broom so you're not that Mm. near to it so that when it jumps out it's not onto you which can be kind of terrifying but the you know the truth of the matter is is that rats are hugely neophobic 
So they don't like change in their life. If you turn your compost a lot, mm. you won't get rats. If you leave your compost for six months, never going to it, constantly putting vegetable peelings in, of course there's going to be yeah. a rat living in there. It's as simple as that. And it doesn't matter how much you try and proof the bin that a rat won't get in it. I mean, I've seen rats eat through extraordinary amounts of plastic to get into a bin. I have had a rat in my compost once, I think. Oh, I've had many. Um, I'm slovenly. That I've seen. But but since I since I've basically put the compost on a, on a slab and that hasn't happened again, they haven't been able to get in. So. Yeah, I think um. a slab underneath is is really good because it's just stops them tunneling up into it. Chicken wire on the base of a of those kind of black council bins, you know, the ones that look mm. like Daleks, that works to some extent. The other thing is, it all the weeds that you know that are really pernicious, like bindweed roots and dock and dandelions if you rot them down in a bucket next door to the compost so you literally put all the roots in that you know won't go through the compost system fill it up with water and then leave it to rot for like two or three months then using that water to like literally drench the compost every once in a while particularly Mm. if you know you have rats they seem to really dislike that big deluge of cold smelly water i can't think why (laughs) Uh, so that's a good trick. But I, I mean, I sort of feel we're slightly... And this is someone who was bitten by a rat. So I feel like I have the battle scars to say that I think we are a little bit over the top about rats. Like, mm. I'm not suggesting that people should be sort of not care if they've got rats in their compost. Of course, you should get rid of them. But at the same time, they're, they're everywhere. And of course, if you're, you know, you have a garden, you've got rats in it, whether you like it or not, whether mm. you make compost or not. So it shouldn't be the reason why you don't make compost. And I think if you have, and you know you're going to have a rat problem, get a worm bin and compost all your food waste into the worm bin first. And then just use the, the compost at the bottom of the garden for your garden waste. I think that's a good strategy. Joining us in the studio now is Emma Cooper, science writer, ethnobotanist and master composter. Emma lives in Oxfordshire with three plastic compost bins, two wormeries and a pair of bakashi bins. Emma, thank you for joining us. Now, I know you're going to be the person who can explain this because we just sort of slightly muffed our way through it really, didn't we, before. Can you explain the carbon to nitrogen ratio that is necessary for composting? Can you remember how many parts you're supposed to have of which bit? I think it's three to one. Okay, I was going for four to one. Yeah. I guess this just highlights that you can go onto a page about how to make compost and read this really long kind of bit of science and chemistry about nitrogen and carbon breaking down and the end of the day, as long as you put carbon and nitrogen into it. Yeah, I don't think people need to get too hung up on doing it properly. Um, as long as I say you're feeding your heap a good mixture of things, it should rot down properly. And what's your favourite thing to feed your heap? My favourite thing to throw on is cardboard tubes from toilet rolls and kitchen rolls because you just get this big wadge of air right in the middle of the pile to keep feeding those bacteria and letting them breathe. And air is a really key thing Mm. to compost isn't it? So the more dense and heavy your compost gets so if you find that your compost has become very slimy or very wet what you need to do is put more carbon and more air into the system. So twigs and sticks and Toilet roll holders. Scrunched up newspaper. Scrunched yeah, up newspaper. Yeah, I think tr- people sometimes put in sort of wads of paper, whereas if you're scrunching yeah. up, quite a good stress reliever, I find, <laughs> getting your, your old bank statements and receipts and scrunching them up, and then, you, then you've got plenty of air in there, rather than occasionally I find a big wad of paper that <laughs> hasn't broken down because I've just not allowed any scrunching to happen. Pizza boxes. Yeah. Very good for composting as well. Absolutely. 
And is there anything, Emma, that you don't put in that other people do put in? Is there any, where you draw the line? We've already talked about Alice's pants. Oh, right. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I compost my pants. I have never composted an article of clothing, not on purpose anyway. <laughs> uh, um, I know a lot of people go all out and put the contents of the vacuum cleaner in. I do that. See, Alice yeah. does that. I, I don't, don't do yeah. that, no. I'm worried about that. Yeah, I'm a bit worried about you know the contents of my carpets. Being the kind of hippie that I am with <laughs> lots of old <laughs> Persian carpets, and I figure that... So that's probably fine. Yeah, yeah I think but I think if you have synthetic carpets, it's an it's issue, not, isn't not it? It's not so good. Yeah, it won't ever rot yeah. down. Yeah, and there's lots of chemical... I mean, there's lots of formaldehyde and stuff like that in modern carpets that you don't find mm. in my moth-ridden... <laughs> And those biodegradable bags, the ones that say they're fully compostable, they just take forever. They just go stringy and nasty. Yeah, they are a lie, aren't they? Yeah, the whole of the compost is ready. It's just got these plasticky, stringy... Mm. I think you have to be be talking about a very, very hot compost. Yeah. Sort of commercial style composting operation for those to really break down. I've I've done lots of experiments, and you're right. And that's one thing that composting really teaches you is how rubbish we are at, at, like, producing good material that will easily break down yeah. like it's really funny you'll you'll put in what you think is a bit of essentially cardboard only to find six months later that it had a plastic film over it and you can still yeah. read you know the <laughs> yogurt brand across it and it's quite astonishing how much plastic is kind of hidden into our food system we need more research and we need people you know entrepreneurs to be really pushing forward mm-hmm. on that i don't know quite why it's not a bigger industry no, and there needs to be a whole thing about everything that we look at and designing from beginning to end of life and just putting that whole recyclable thing into place. It's just not there at the moment. Every m- new build house should have a compost bin already built into the system. Yeah, I think that's true. What, there, people are, a lot of people don't compost, even gardeners and people with allotments. What, why is that? Uh, well, with my master composter hat on, I'm an ambassador for composting. So we go out into the community and try and A, encourage people to start composting and B, to continue composting if they've hit a snag and got out of the loop. If they've had the green slime experience and, um, and give them some advice on how to get past that. But I think there's the ick factor. People don't like collecting their waste. And also it's easier if you can just got a bin in the kitchen, you just throw it in. You don't have to wander down to the end of the garden, which is inevitably where people put their compost heaps. And do you have any, obviously you've got a, a couple of, well, no, three plastic compost bins. What what are your favourite kinds of composters? Do you kind of have yeah, a why loyalty? Why did you go with a plastic bin? Because when I started out that, you know, I had one of those leaflets from the council saying, have a cheap bin, and yeah, I actually get on with them. Oh, okay. Um, because they hold in the moisture, so I don't have to go out and worry about whether my compost heap has got too dry. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the way that I compost, I just throw things in gradually and, and have a big dig out once or twice a year, and it just works for me, yeah. although I know they're not perfect for everybody. I think the thing is, the trick is, is having more than one, isn't it? That's it is. It's because yes. that's the problem. Is you, you, If you have just one of any size of compost bin, at some point you're going to fill it up, and yet it's not going to be ready to yeah. dig it all out. So that's why you need the backup, because it makes life yeah. much easier. I have to say, I don't use my plastic composter in the way that they, that they say you can, which is to kind of keep it going as a process, put new stuff in the bot- in the top and take yeah. the old stuff out the bottom, because I just don't think that works. No, It is very much a sort of batch process where you, you finish filling one, you leave it, and you come back to it later. I would, in, the, in, the, in my favourite new composting system, the hot bin, <laughs> I would say that that, that that kind of continuous process actually does work really okay. well. You literally can dig out some at the bottom and then it just all sinks and you pull it back in. But I think that's just only because it's cooking it 
it so quickly. The other thing that I really enjoy, and perhaps you're the only two people who might appreciate this, is when you're actually getting to that point of, of, of emptying it out. That is a really <sighs> wonderful moment. And only people who do composting will understand this. When you get that compost out, you get this amazing free product. Yeah. I mean, it turns your soil into the finest stuff you could ever imagine just from your waste. And I have on the, because I have three pallet bins on, on the allotment and turning compost is an awesome workout. Yeah. Who needs a gym? Yeah, really? really. Upper body yeah. strength. Indeed. And so if you've never tried composting, now is the time to, to get going with a heap. Still to come, we'll be speaking to Jeff Lowenfels, the author of the brilliant book, Teeming with Microbes. This Guardian podcast is sponsored by Husqvarna, leaders in lawn and garden equipment. Want a perfectly mowed lawn? The Husqvarna Ride-On Lawn Mower Range features a unique articulated steering system and front-mounted cutting deck, giving you unrivaled maneuverability in tight spaces, around trees, under benches, and against fences, allowing easy navigation of most complex lawns. Husqvarna, ready when you are. If there's one book that will change the way you view your soil forever, it's Teeming with Microbes by Jeff Lowenfels and Wayne Lewis. Did you know that just one teaspoon of good homemade compost contains a billion invisible bacteria, several thousand protozoa, and 150 to 300 metres of fungal hyphae, and lots more? Jeff Lowenfeld joins us now on the line from Alaska to explain some of the science behind composting and why the stuff is so very good for our gardens. Hello, Jeff. Oh, hello. How are you doing there? Good. Is it nice and sunny in Alaska? Well, it's not quite sunny. The sun is up, but it's only five in the morning, so it's not, it hasn't hit its intensity yet. And do you compost at home? And if so, how do you compost? Well, I do. I, I have vermicompost uh, so that I'm able to compost during the winter months. Uh, with worms, and then I have a regular compost pile outside, which I use during the summer months. The wonderful thing about your book is that it takes really quite complex science and explains it in a way that makes perfect sense to any gardener, which is that your soil can be all the food your plants ever need if it harnesses all the microbes in it. And essentially that's what's happening in compost, isn't it? That's correct. I think the the thing about compost that people don't understand is that it it contains what I call the fertilizer bags and the fertilizer spreaders. And it's the only substance that I know of that does that. So what do I mean by that? The way plants work is very mysterious to most people. They don't realize that the photosynthetic energy that a plant produces isn't used just to produce that tomato or just to produce a flower. A lot of it goes down through the roots and drips out into the soil. Just like we sweat, a plant drips out these wonderful, wonderful little sweats. And those sweats attract bacteria and fungi to the root zone. They eat these exudates that come from the plant. And they're very happy there, and they're eating these exudates because they contain lots of carbon. And so their numbers increase, and they're very, very happy. And then along come the things that eat them. Uh, and the things that eat them are nematodes and protozoa. We studied protozoas in school, um, paramecium and amoebas. Uh, nematodes are these little invisible worms that are hair-like worms, and they eat the bacteria, and they eat the fungi, and they don't need everything that they're eating, so they, they excrete some of it, and what they excrete contains nitrogen in plant-usable form. 
What's really happening is the plant is attracting the protozoa, excuse me, the uh, uh, bacteria and the fungi, and they attract the fertilizer spreaders, the nematodes and the protozoa, who do the eating and the spreading, and the plant feeds itself. Wow. Compost has all of the nematodes and the protozoa, the bacteria and the fungi you'd ever want to have. That's why compost is so good. So every time you put compost into your soil, basically you're boosting the amount of good bacteria and protozoa and whatnot. Is that... Is absolutely. Absolutely. And it's so important to do because they are what feed the plants. We like to think as gardeners that we are supposed to feed the plants. No, 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 no. That's just a post-World War II invention. The microbes are supposed to feed the plants, and we traditionally were feeding the microbes. It's only since we've started this chemical craziness that we've changed this, this system. So the way it's supposed to work is we feed the microbes, the microbes feed the plants. That is exactly in a nutshell, isn't it? And I think people always think that you're slightly fobbing them off, that you're being a bit of a hippie when you say compost is all yeah. the food you ever need. But That's it right. really is all the food your plants ever need. The stuff that it you is. make and at home, you don't ever have to buy manufactured fertilizers ever again as long as you make good compost. I agree. That's absolutely correct. And, and the problem uh, that we have now is that, of course, we've, we've spent, oh gosh, the past 40 years, you know, being yelled at by, you know, right now in America, we're getting yelled at every spring by this Scott guy who tells us we got to throw this junk down on our lawns and we got to throw this stuff into our pots and, you know, by golly, and he, you know, and, and if it's not done, we're going to, you know, we're really going to have a terrible summer. And so people do it, you know, they look at golf courses and they see that they're green and green and no weeds and so they throw these chemicals down and and we get farther and farther away from the concept that it's the microbes we should be teaming up with not miracle grow you know syngenta monsanto and all those folks and and i think i think we're getting there again uh, it's taking a little bit of a while and also the, the the point about having all those beneficial microbes is that they feed the plant but they're also quite important in how the health of the plant aren't they and in, in its ability oh, to defend itself Oh, absolutely. They do a number of things other than feeding the plant. Feeding the plant is, you know, the sexy part of it. The other things that they do, for example, they create soil structure. And if you don't have soil structure, then you have all sorts of problems because your plants are growing in anaerobic situations. There's no drainage, uh, soil blows away, etc. It's those bacteria, they have this little sticky stuff that they produce in order to stick together in colonies. And those little colonies stick to bits of soil and cause those little bits of soil to stick to each other. And then you've got these fungi throwing these, these hyphes, these threads, weaving through the soil. In a teaspoon of, of good rye, you know, ryegrass, you can have three miles of them in a little teaspoon. My goodness gracious, that all gives soil structure. It holds it together. And the little particles that are being held together, they're not bricks. They're not flat. And so, so there's air spaces and pore spaces created when you do this and, and, and water can go in and air can go in and it's just so you get soil structure and then they they produce um, chemicals in order to protect themselves and in doing so they end up protecting the plant by keeping the bad guys at bay uh, they do all sorts of terrific wonderful things for for plants not just feeding them and jeff i always find that you know when you're trying to convince people that they need to start composting that part of the barrier is oh it's a lot of work and i'm not really sure what to do 
is are there any shortcuts that sort of yes. uh, time time poor or or indeed lazy gardeners can follow? Sure. Well, let's take the first. The first is the really lazy gardener. All you have to do is put your leaves and your grass clippings and whatnot, just put them off to the side, and in a year and a half, it'll be compost. You don't have to do anything to it. It just happens. Uh, you know, that's the easiest way to do it. Now, if you're, if you're somebody who wants to make compost, but you're, you know, you're impatient, uh, you can take a bag of alfalfa meal, which you can get at a feed store, People use it to feed uh, uh, rabbits and whatnot. You can even use rabbit pellets. And you can mix that with a bag of just brown leaves from a tree. One bag of each. And uh, if you get a three and a half uh, cubic foot area of that mixture, you'll end up with compost in about two weeks. (laughs) Uh, It gets very hot. Uh, there's a lot of bacteria and microbes in the in the alfalfa, and they really go to work on on the hard to digest things in the brown leaves. And if you if you pay attention to it and turn it every three or four days, you'll have compost literally in a couple of weeks. And what are the challenges of composting in Alaska? Do you have you know problems with? I mean, we're talking about rats, uh, which are a problem over here. But are yeah, there is, yeah. are there any particular challenges well, the freezing we, winters and yeah freezing winters are a problem of course uh, and that's why i use the vermicompost uh if my i gotta make sure my wife's not listening but uh very often when she's not around i keep the vermicompost right here in the living room uh in in a very attractive little vermicomposter and and uh, i compost all winter long but we have bears and and they'll get into compost if, if you're not careful uh we're oh, fortunate we don't have any rats feel really yeah. insubstantial i want a bear yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We don't have snakes, though, and that's, that's the one thing I don't like in compost, uh, uh, snakes. So, so I, I have a couple of suggestions for people who do make compost. I'm not a big fan of those compost uh, bins that don't touch the ground. The, the compost that you make in those bins doesn't have the full complement of the soil food web because in a compost pile, a lot of that stuff comes up through the ground. <laughs> and so, so you want to, you want to, if you have one of those, you want to take a couple of shovels of, of real soil and throw it in there to, to supplement the herd. It's very, very important not to have your compost too wet. Of course, people know that. Uh, and it's very important to turn your compost uh, when it needs to be turned. That's what keeps the compost pile uh, working. And so I like to keep a nice, a nice big uh, thermometer. Uh, I've got some friends that don't have a thermometer. They use a big piece of rebar, just a piece of metal. They stick it right in there, and they can, they can feel the metal. And when it cools down, they know they need to turn the pile. Ooh, when it stops heating eventually, mm. you've got compost. Why is uh, wet compost bad particularly? Well, wet compost doesn't heat up properly. Right. Uh, it gets anaerobic, and so you don't get the right, you don't get the right bacteria working. And the fungi don't work at all when it's anaerobic. Right. So, so you don't want to have it too wet because you don't get air in it. And, and, and you can, it's easy to tell. You just take a, you know, this is standard, you just take a handful. And if you don't have arthritis, you just squeeze it real hard. And you should get just a little drop out of it. That's it. No and more than a drop. How much, how thickly do you need to spread your compost onto the ground to make a difference? Yeah. Well, that's one of the wonderful things about compost is you really don't need very much of it. Uh, about a quarter of an inch uh, down on your garden, uh, the microbes and the worms and all the soil food web uh, organisms will work, work that stuff down. And in about, oh, eight months, it's down 18 inches. So, you know, the, the impacts are 18. So you really don't need very much of it. And you don't need to rototill it in. That's very important. 
And so that's 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 the other thing that that the book I hope the book did was convince people to stop rototilling. That's a that's a thing that came from England. We don't need to do it anymore. <laughs> I think America's like we call it rotivating here, um, and I think America's slightly obsessed with it because wait, wait 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 you call it what rotivating. Rotivate. No wonder I can never find rototilling in no, my spell nobody, checker. Nobody <laughs> says rototilling. Rotivating is what we call it. But I actually think that it's slightly dying a death here because mm. gardens have got so small because cities have become so much more kind of populated and yes. suburbs and brand new houses don't have big gardens. And so people aren't, you know, like it's it's a big machine uh, for, a, for a garden. Yes. That's not, I mean, yes. and, and also you used to see it a lot on allotments and you really don't see it at all now. Interesting. But even so, you don't even need to dig your compost in. I mean, just putting it on the nope. surface is good enough, isn't it? That's right. And and uh, as I indicated, of course, I've got the second book, but I'm writing a third book on mycorrhizal fungi. And when you do this, this disturb the soil in any way whatsoever, you're disturbing the mycorrhizal network that's so important. Uh, these mycorrhizal fungi are, are special fungi that don't happen to be in compost, I might add. Uh, and they're very, very special. And they, they associate with about 95% of all the plants on on earth and certainly almost all of the plants that anybody would grow in a garden uh, or a landscape uh, and so so when you rototill or you you plow or you even disturb with a shovel by double digging you are disrupting and destroying that network which is so important so it's not a good thing to do uh, I always tell my, my uh, audiences that that it was Jethro Tull an English lawyer uh, who, who invented this process and and it made sense in America and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and all the boys, they read his stuff uh, and they followed him very carefully because what he did was show America how to take old growth forest and change the soil composition so that you could grow crops in it. Mm. And you only need to do that once, but we continue to rototill every year. And so we've gone crazy over here. And does it, I, we were just talking earlier about how getting compost out of your heap that's ready to go is a kind of there's a great excitement do you kind of get a buzz from composting oh oh absolutely oh my gosh do i ever because i'm kind of a composting nerd uh, for example <laughs> uh this is something that that you might want to try it's really a lot of fun take a, a little handful of compost maybe get a little uh yogurt container or something like that from the from the supermarket empty put the compost in it and mix in a handful of baby oatmeal just the flakes of baby oatmeal. You just mix it in. Don't, don't cook it. Just mix it in. And cover it up. Put it in the dark in a nice warm spot. Uh, and then check it if, if, in three or four days. What will happen is the baby oatmeal will feed the fungus or the fungi that are in the compost. And they will grow and multiply. And they will become first hyphae. Then those hyphae form mycelium. And you get this visible thread system. that, that comes. At the end of three or four days, you should be able to take that yogurt cup, turn it upside down, dump it out, the compost that's in it, and it should retain the shape of the cup. You should be able to drop it on the floor. It should retain the shape of the cup because the fungi that's in that compost grows. So I like to grow my, my fungi so I can see what, how good my compost is before I use it. It really excites me. Then I like to take it and I like to mix it with a little water and look at it in a microscope. Oh, 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 my gosh. But I'm a compost nerd. <laughs> well, there's a couple of brilliant experiments for us all to try when we get home. Jeff, thank you very oh, much. Oh, yes. <laughs> thank you, Jeff. My pleasure. Now, never let it be said that we don't listen to our audience here at So Grow Repeat. This whole episode on compost was actually inspired by a post from listener John Lanyon on our Guardian Gardens Facebook page. He wrote, 
When I'm digging out a compost heap, I usually find A, a vegetable knife, B, a teaspoon, or C, a trowel. There followed a hair-raising list of odd things we've found in our heaps, from plastic envelope windows to a pair of cow castrating scissors. That was obviously a rather ancient compost heap there. And there began the germ of an idea that a podcast about compost would be a really good topic. One of my favourites came from Lucy Garden, who said she digs up avocado stones that have germinated, pots them up and brings them inside as houseplants. But things got weirder when we put out a call to listeners on Twitter. Tilly Thornley told us she'd found a wallet containing four credit cards, not belonging to her or anyone else she knows, and she never got to the bottom of quite who they belonged to. Genus Gardenware came across a nest of newborn mice, two foot down, after she couldn't work out what the squeaking noise was coming from her heap. But Sarah Venn trumped us all with the story of the time she found a dead lamb in a delivery of manure from a local farm. She says, We realised when we saw its tiny hooves poking out. Grim. Although I am pleased to report that she gave the lamb a decent burial. So remember, we'd love you to get in touch with us here at So Grow Repeat. Next week, we'll be doing an Ask Alice special where we'd like you to send us your tricky, impossible, really gnarly gardening questions for our experts to answer. There's various ways you can get in touch. Our Twitter handle is at Guardian Garden, so feel free to tweet us. You can email askalice at theguardian.com. Just remember that Alice has a Y in it. Or leave a comment on our Facebook page, which you can find by searching for Guardian Gardens. 